Hi, everyone. Welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boyler. Okay, here's a quick story about my childhood. When I was a kid, and so this must have been the late 1980s or early 1990s, the Southern California TV network that owned the rights to The Twilight Zone would broadcast a Twilight Zone marathon every Thanksgiving, something like nine or ten uninterrupted hours of just The Twilight Zone. Uh, And I learned about this and of The Twilight Zone itself because one year we went to visit my grandparents for Thanksgiving, and my grandfather spent the whole day recording the episodes of The Twilight Zone on his VCR, hour after hour until dinner, so he could add them to his home movie or video library. Uh, And that was great for the time because there was really no other way for him to pull up a favorite episode whenever he wanted, let alone watch a few classic ones when his grandson came to town. It was either fast-forwarding through video cassettes or just hoping that at some point we'd all be in the same place and the Twilight Zone would be on in syndication and it had happened to be an episode we'd all enjoy. So back then, that's how we did things. We'd buy some videotapes the legitimate way or we'd pirate things from television with VCRs. And if you did that enough, you could more or less watch your favorite movies and TV shows whenever you wanted. Over time, obviously, technology made this method obsolete. By the time my grandfather died, every episode of The Twilight Zone was available for purchase in a DVD box set, and televisions had TiVos, so you could just record a Twilight Zone marathon and watch the episodes as time allowed. And that's still more or less the reigning technology, unless you happen to subscribe to a streaming service that currently has the rights to The Twilight Zone, in which case you don't even need to bother with shelf space or DVR space or anything like that. Anyhow, I wanted to tell that story for a couple reasons. One, because my grandfather was awesome and had great taste in television. The other is that I think his fastidiousness about recording TV marathons gets at something fundamental about pop culture consumers that pop culture producers and middlemen wish was not true. And that is, we want to watch and listen to what we like whenever we want. We'll pay for it or pirate it But in the days before Spotify, the reason we'd amass huge LP collections or CD collections or MP3 collections was to be able to call up our favorite songs and albums on demand without having to rely on the whims of a DJ or have special financial relationships with RCA or any other company. Now, obviously, consumers aren't the only stakeholders in this equation. And I think in the realm of music in particular, the combination of on-demand technology and consumer impatience has been pretty hard on independent artists. So even if we got exactly what we said we wanted or close to what we said we wanted, it's had real consequences, some of which we'll never see because it's in the form of art that will never be made. But, 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 I started with The Twilight Zone for a reason. And that reason is, I think where we ended up in the realm of television shows and movies, our new nexus of on-demand technology and consumer impatience is somehow worse and often more expensive than what we had when we all had DVD players and overpriced cable packages and TiVo. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, including the story about my grandfather and his VCR, ever since I learned that HBO planned to stop hosting some of its own shows on its own streaming service, HBO Max, to save money it might otherwise owe in residuals. This wasn't a huge blow to me, because I never really got into Westworld or any of the other shows that are, for the time being at least, gone. But if you did, then the wisdom of the VCR-owning ancients probably strikes a chord right now. And even if you don't, 
it kind of crystallizes everything that's unsatisfying about the unbundled future we're living in. What do I mean by unbundled? Well, it's an industry and policy term for what consumers seemed to want as of about a decade ago. We paid cable companies a lot of money every month for a zillion channels, most of which we almost never watched, for the opportunity to catch the programming we really wanted to see. But to get access to all the good stuff, you had to pay more and more, and even then, you were at the mercy of the entertainment channels and whatever shows and movies they happened to be cycling through. Unbundling was the utopian idea that modern technology could let us build our own a la carte entertainment packages, kind of like building a sandwich at a Wawa. Uh, And the technology definitely exists to allow us to do this in theory. But in practice, calling up what you want to watch when you want requires subscribing to several different increasingly niche streaming services or paying to rent or buy movies or both. In our house, we subscribe to Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, HBO Max, Peacock, and I'm probably forgetting one or two. And we nevertheless occasionally find ourselves paying for individual episodes of shows or movies but not in a way that lets us own the content itself. Rather, we own the right to replay a video file that Apple owns whenever we want, so long as we have access to the internet and an account with Apple. Uh, It's kludgy and exploitative, and depending on your habits, it's no cheaper than just paying a boatload of money to Comcast every month. And yet, despite all this spending and proliferation of logins and passwords, I don't think customers think it's great. I don't think artists like it. I don't think the business guys like it which isn't necessarily to say we should go back, but it does have me wondering if there's anywhere to go from here other than backwards that will get us closer to a consumer experience of a la carte home movie and television watching that's more one stop than what we have without wrecking what we're still good at, at least from time to time, which is making good entertainment. Michael Schneider is a reporter for Variety who's been covering the television business for 25 years, and I wanted to talk to him this week both because I need a primer on how we evolved at this point, and because I want to know what people in the know think the next iteration might look like. So without further ado, Michael, thanks for sitting through that endless windup. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, it's a pretty good primer of what's going on. It's it's the classic, be careful what you wish for, uh, because the new reality is here, and uh, it's not as great as we thought it might be. It definitely isn't. I mean, so that's about as much as I know, is that, you know, at one point I was really excited about Netflix becoming mostly streaming, and, and now it's a few years later, and uh, I'm poorer as a result, and I... I it didn't really pan out the way I expected it would or was hoping it would. Um, so that's my weakness here is that I really only see and understand the consumer side of this topic. And so I wanted to start by asking you what that blinds me to. Like, is there is there a happy story to tell about sympathetic stakeholders anywhere in the streaming world? Or is it all just kind of everyone's a little dissatisfied with where we ended up? Well, you know, it's interesting. Talk about timing. If we were having this conversation two years ago uh, before sort of the great course correction we're now undergoing in the streaming business, then I would have argued that, well, this is where Wall Street is. They really are rewarding this new streaming age. Look at Netflix and it's, uh, you know, just nonstop growth, the amount of investment that they're putting into content. And it does seem like that's the future. We'll cut to 2022 and 
suddenly Netflix stumbled a bit in terms of uh, you know uh, their earnings report and the fact that they had lost a few customers in the United States. Well, that caused a great panic on Wall Street, and it had a ripple effect on the entire business. And it's where we are now in realizing, oh, this great uh, you know future of streaming that promised every show you ever wanted at any time and uh, unlimited growth. Well, uh, that wasn't going to happen. There is no such thing as unlimited growth. And now everyone's realizing, oh, wait, uh, the genie escaped the bottle and now we can't put that genie back in. This is the new reality. And it's not as, like you said, profitable as we thought it was going to be for this industry. Uh, it's, it's you know, the one good thing that we've seen is uh, still a real growth in storytelling, a real opportunity for unheard voices to, to finally have a home. Uh, and some of the most interesting shows on television right now are, are still being produced on streamers. And so from an entertainment perspective. It's been a really good decade. But going forward, uh, the business is really going through, like I said, this course correction. You alluded uh, to Wall Street and you also alluded to um, the, you know, the proliferation of quality entertainment on streamers and elsewhere over the last decade or so. And I want to get back to both of those things. But first, I want to turn back the clock to a decade or so ago uh, when the most common consumer complaints were at least from my perspective, were about cable companies and their prices and bad service and how little sense it made to pay that much for a bundle of products when most people only liked a tiny fraction of what they were paying for. How did we end up there as of you know 2008 or whenever you want to start the clock uh, or end the clock? Uh, was it just dumb circumstance or, or was it an intentional outgrowth of business decisions and public policy that landed us in that unhappy place? Well, there's a couple of things. One thing is the cable companies, which they helped kill the golden goose because of bad customer service, like you mentioned, and and just their pure hubris. And, and also they felt like they, they had a business that, uh, you know, there, there would be never any sort of downside. They didn't predict the streaming revolution. Uh, you know, they, they, they got really greedy. Uh, out of their hubris and, and out of their power and uh, started putting out a product that was really subpar and, and really dared consumers to quit, to, to move on to something different. And then when consumers found something different, they did move on. They started cutting the cord. Uh, but, you know, from a bundle perspective, uh, you know, that's that's business. That's business 101, which is, you know, in, in order to fund all of these different channels, no one watches the same 30 channels. You know, the plenty of studies are out there back in the cable days where most cable subscribers watched 15, 16 channels at most. But your 15 or 16 channels were different than your neighbor's 15 or 16 channels. So in a way, much like, say, insurance, mm -hmm. where everyone is paying into the pot, uh, but you know, you're not necessarily sick, but you are helping your neighbor who is sick uh, maintain you know, certain prices. And, and so, and it's insurance for maybe the day that you will get sick. It's the same thing with cable where maybe you didn't watch IFC, but someone else did. IFC was doing great programming, but if IFC 
uh, were, you know, if, if they were a la carte, no one would buy IFC. It wouldn't exist. Not enough people would uh, because everyone is paying for, you know, ESPN or some of the news channels, et cetera. But bundling allowed some of those cable networks to, uh, you know, basically exist and produce some great content on top of the mainstream large channels that everyone knew and watched. And so rising tide lifted all boats. And that allowed 500 channels that allowed some really interesting programming in the 2000s to happen uh, and, and really give broadcast a run for its money. So, you know, in hindsight, bundling maybe wasn't so bad after all, but people didn't like it at the time because they're like, why am I paying for this channel that I'm not watching? Well, it's part of the deal. It's, you know, you're paying for cable as a whole so that there are those options. And maybe one day there might be something on that channel, like an AMC, which was uh, able to turn into a programming powerhouse because of those fees and move on from just showing old movies and suddenly showing Mad Men and Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. Well, that's because there was money in cable. FX, same thing. You know, a lot of these channels that came out of the boom of the 2000s is because they had those cable fees and it allowed them to reinvest in programming and do some great stuff. So I I remember the conversation about unbundling and thinking that from my perspective, it would be great. This was 15 years ago or something like that. Um, and what I'm, what I'm taking from you is that unbundling was a solution sort of offered to people like me uh, to solve a different problem, which was really just how crummy it was to have to work through the cable companies as they operated and less about any like specific problem with how what consumers paid in went to go finance the creation of good media right like if we were unhappy with the service cable companies were offering the solution should have been about regulating how they conduct themselves rather than uh, with how they pool resources to make it possible for for so many channels to proliferate on their platform. Yeah, and, and cable became a victim of its own success because, uh, you know, more people were watching cable, these channels were producing better programming, so they kept raising their fees. Uh, and, you know, you can't underestimate the, you know, the, the issue of sports fees as well, because that was the lion's share of, of, you know, your cable bill was paying for all of these, you know, both national channels like ESPN, but also your local channels as well that were carrying your local sports teams. Suddenly they were asking for a lot more money money too. You combine that with more cable networks producing more original content, they're asking for more money. So suddenly your cable bill gets bigger and bigger. And, you know, at some point that started to really, uh, you know, upset people. And, and really right around the time that streaming came, people were like, is there another solution? Is there another answer to my insane cable bill? So along comes Netflix and they say, well, we've got it all. Uh, and we're only, you know, back in the day, you know, seven ninety nine, six ninety nine a month, and because at that time they were the only ones in this space, all the other cable networks were selling their, uh, you know, their back end, which is basically the reruns of their hit shows to Netflix. So at that point, Netflix really did have a lion's share of all the great content from all the networks, and it looked like, well. Why am I paying for 
cable when I could just get Netflix and I've got all the shows all the time. And ironically, and I know we're jumping around here, but ironically it was, you know, the cable networks looking to squeeze every last dollar out of their shows and thinking, okay, here's some extra money beyond syndication, beyond everything else that we can get from Netflix. They gave all their good stuff to Netflix and that allowed Netflix to grow into this behemoth because they were the first in and it's the classic first in, they became a utility, uh, sort of seen as a necessity by the mid 2010s where you needed to have Netflix in order to watch everything in reruns. So um, I, I, I get the impression of what you're saying that the unbundling dream, at least the utopian version of it f- that I first heard about back in the aughts was not practicable. Like it was mostly just a fantasy. Um, but at some point, Netflix stopped being just like blockbuster video by mail, um, and streaming became the central part of its business. And did so that because it was like the only game in town. Did that create the illusion that unbundling could work? Like if no other companies had ever joined the market to compete with Netflix, might it have evolved into this? one-stop streaming behemoth that really did fulfill the promise of getting to watch what you want when you want, but basically because it was a monopoly and there was, you know, no one to hive off pieces of its library, basically. Yeah, yeah, but it was never going to last long because quickly the traditional conglomerates, uh, you know, Disney, Paramount, Universal, et cetera, they they, they quickly, NBC Universal, uh, Comcast, uh, they, they quickly realized that, oh, wait, we are now basically funding this operation that is siphoning viewers from our golden gooses, from our traditional linear cable and broadcast networks. That's a problem uh, because, you know, we're, we're basically allowing this, this company that will one day control us, one day can, can consume all viewership. We can't let that happen. We still need to be in control of our destiny, of our back end. We need to figure out what to do. And that's when they started to create their own streaming services, uh, which then, of course, continued to uh, eat away at their traditional linear businesses. And so even though these became a la carte, uh, you know, it, it was the unbundling. Uh, at the same time, they're watching their cable networks, which are the money makers for a lot of these companies, continue to decline and hasten that decline. And, you know, at that point, uh, you know, again, uh, where do you go from there? That's sort of been the dilemma the past couple of years is they're replacing a model that made them billions upon billions of dollars with a model that gives them millions upon millions of dollars. And that's not sustainable. I mean, it sounds pretty sustainable to me. If anyone wants to give me millions as opposed to billions of dollars, I will not complain. Uh, (laughs) Right. But when you're used to those billions of dollars and you have an economic model that requires billions of dollars coming in, when you're losing that and there's no replacement, then that's that shakes the entire system. That, that that impacts the entire ecosystem of Hollywood. Right, that puts jobs at risk too, right? Yeah. Do you have a sense for why the monopoly model for giving consumers on demand what they want 
seem to not work. I mean, it, it, it's seems stable in music. You get Spotify, Apple music. You can basically make a playlist for any occasion with any artist and almost any song. It's not like you have to have your special, uh, monthly contract with RCA and a separate one with whatever other recording company to get the music that you want patched together. Um, that hasn't happened on the movie and TV side of things. And I, because I'm, I'm just somebody who pays for this stuff, don't know why. Yeah. I mean, they're very different businesses and, and you could argue that the music industry had already been just decimated, uh, you know, much earlier than, than any of the other industries because of, you know, downloads, illegal downloads, you know, every, everything that happened early on in the internet revolution. So they, they, they're coming in at a very different place. They're already at a much weekend, uh, weekend state than the, the television and, and film industries. And, and so just a completely different model there. And, uh, you know, arguably just, you know, not as a profitable business as TV and movies. And so that's where, you know, it's, it's just operates differently over there. And, you know, as we know, you know, for, especially for artists, they make their money now on, on touring. They, they make their money on everything, but uh, the actual music that they put out because that, that industry just fell apart, uh, you know, early on uh, in, the, in the internet ev evolution, partly because it was much easier. The technology was there uh, by the end of the nineties to download, whereas the technology wasn't there uh, as soon for uh, visual mediums. Is the situation with streamers and movies and TV that they make, is it as precarious or is it becoming as precarious as the, uh, the problems that decimated the music industry? Are we, are we going to like witness a collapse and then uh, rethinking about how we produce and consume that kind of yeah. media? Yeah, yeah, we're we're seeing that right now. Uh, wow. You know, these these next couple of years are, are transitional years because you know the linear, the linear model. Uh, it, it's you know linear television hasn't gone away. Uh, you know, there there's still billions of dollars uh, in advertising that goes to the traditional linear networks. So uh, you're in this weird transitional stage where the conglomerates, they can't just get out of the linear business and they, they shouldn't because that's where they're still making a lot of money. But at the same time, ratings are minuscule now. People have cut the cord. Uh, penetration of cable in U.S. households, I think, is down to around 60% now, uh, where, you know, it had been much higher back, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So it's it's never going to be the same. You're not going to suddenly see a return to it's not going to be like vinyl, where people suddenly like, hey, I'm I'm the, the hipster isn't suddenly going to resubscribe to cable because that's where the cool kids are. So that business is, you know, it's managing declines, and it has been for the past couple of years in, in all uh, you know types of programming, except for sports, uh, which you know still is the, the one bright spot. Uh, in, in linear TV, I just did my annual list of the top uh, programs of the year uh, in, uh, in linear, and I would say 90% was sports, uh, and 85% and of that was probably NFL. Uh, you know, it's, it's so, so everyone is sort of adjusting to that and the economics of, okay, we can't do as much for the traditional linear as we used to. A lot of the networks that were doing scripted programming have already pulled out of scripted programming. You have, uh, you know, certain networks that have already sort of 
segued over to a more streaming universe like FX that are still programming and, and producing a lot. But then you have networks like AMC, which hasn't figured out their streaming strategy. They tried to. They created an entity called AMC+. Plus. They haven't been able to crack that subscription nut. So as a result, they're struggling right now. They've just canceled a whole bunch of shows. Uh, a lot of things that they've even produced that will never see the light of day because they're they're now trying to, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, use those as tax write-offs. Uh, but you'll have certain networks like AMC that will downsize and not maybe not completely get out of the scripted business, but definitely pull back. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing that came with the, and I'm sorry, I'm jumping. No, 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 here. no, not at all. This is great. Uh, stream of consciousness here. But, you know, the other thing, when we talk about sort of the the economics of television in particular, and when you think about uh, huge shows uh, from the 90s, like Seinfeld, Friends, which were just billion-dollar shows that uh, were huge in syndication, that every few years would be resold in syndication, and the creators of those shows, the stars of those shows, would have another windfall. That you know, that's that's like winning the lotto. Uh, but that wasn't even you know, those are the high end. But there would be plenty of shows that would go four seasons, would be sold into syndication, and the producers behind those shows would make a, a nice living, probably a lot more money than you and I will ever see in our lifetime. <laughs> Uh, you know, that was sort of the goal. And that happened quite frequently. You know, the, the, even though the, the landscape is littered with, uh, you know, canceled shows, there are plenty of shows through the years that would go the distance. Four seasons would be sold into syndication. Everyone would make a nice, tidy profit. And, you know, that's what would fuel this business. So those, those big syndicated hits would then fund other shows. Uh, you know, the creators of those shows would sign overall deals with studios and networks and then create new shows. And, you know, that that system worked, uh, you know, and it made everyone involved, especially in, with a hit, hugely profitable, hugely rich. But we're living in an age now where syndication basically has dried up. Uh, you know, those, those days of Doing a show for four seasons, 100 episodes, which is rare to begin with because in streaming you do 10 episodes a season at most. Maybe you do three seasons. Maybe that's 30 episodes. That's not – you can't sell that into syndication. Uh, there is no back end. Uh, so at this point, the, the, the gravy train that uh, writers used to look forward to and expect in success isn't there anymore. A lot of times – Folks are paid up front. Uh, it's called a cost plus model where, uh, you know, you get what could be your back end up front. So you make a nice, nice amount of money, but you don't make the riches. Uh, you're not Scrooge McDuck anymore jumping into the, the vat of gold coins. Uh, you know, you're probably buying a nice home still in Pasadena. But the age of those massive paydays have kind of gone by the wayside for all but the biggest of uh, you know, producers like a Ryan Murphy or a Shonda Rhimes. Um, but what happens now is that middle class of writers, the ones who, you know, write and dream of that day of maybe creating something big, uh, they've sort of been squeezed out. Uh, and and there isn't that, that, that sort of promise of success or hope of success that there once was for, for that level of, of writer. Right. It's, it's so funny. While, while we were waiting for you to, to come into the waiting room, like you, you, what you just said about how below the Seinfeld tier, there was just a ton of shows that most people probably don't remember uh, that did well enough to sell into syndication to make 
small fortunes for l- large numbers of people. And we, Ben Savage, Fred Savage's brother, who was on a show called Boy Meets World that I watched when I was like a preteen and a teenager, is going to run for the House of Representatives, probably on the basis of having been on a mediocre, <laughs> like com- coming of <laughs> coming of age. Uh, you know, on the money that he made from being on a mediocre coming of age story uh, in the 1990s um, that like obviously never reached the Seinfeld Heights, but like I watched it, I can probably still sing this, the theme song from memory along with like 20 other shows that were just like that. And now I don't know if that tier of television really even exists because I never, I never watched network TV. I don't know what's on it. Yeah, there's, 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 uh, you know, there's only a few left. Uh, you know, for for a long time, it was the domain of Chuck Lorre, who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, dominated CBS's schedule for a long time with sitcoms uh, and uh, did quite well and continues to do well, uh, even though he's seen his uh, sort of domain uh, shrink as this whole world shrinks. Uh, but you know, there's there's a handful of shows out there right now that sort of fall under that. Uh, Abbott Elementary on ABC, Ghosts on CBS are sort of the two sitcoms right now that are saving broadcast TV. Those are two shows that will go the distance, will go into syndication because they're still doing 20-odd episodes a season. But that's a rarity rather than, you know, there used to be a ton of those shows that would come out, uh, you know, a, a, every couple of years. So last year, um, you wrote a, an article sort of wondering whether Better Call Saul would be the last basic cable serial to sort of clean up at the Emmys. Um, and you compared in your article um, the way prestige cable shows like Better Call Saul had had sort of elbowed broadcast television shows out of relevance uh, to what streamers are now doing to the cable shows. Um, under the under the paradigm that's emerging now, the sort of crisis collapsing paradigm that we were just talking about, could could shows like Better Call Saul or Mad Men actually be made today or make it past one season? I mean, they they could, but you know, more likely than not, they probably would be on a streaming service. You know, because you even you know, even in examples of you know traditional linear networks like FX, most of their content now moving forward is is premiering on streaming instead. Uh, so you know, FX, uh, you know, because of their common uh, ownership by Disney, most of FX's new content premieres on Hulu instead of the actual linear network. So, you know, you, you still have those kind of shows that are out there, but the future continues to be at least, uh, you know, investment of that level caliber show. Uh, it, it's all sort of moving to, to streaming. Uh, and you have an interesting case of, you know, I mentioned FX on Hulu, where a lot of these companies now are just taking those those cable brands and focusing those cable brands on their streaming service. So Paramount Global is a good example of a company that has basically turned a lot of its linear networks like MTV, VH1, Comedy Central into more or less most Barker channels. Uh, you know, they're, uh, they're zombie cable networks now where they're mostly just playing repeats and even a lot of their original programming is premiering instead on the streamer. MTV shows, MTV branded shows are pretty much all premiering now on Paramount Plus instead of on MTV. If you turn on MTV, it's all ridiculousness all the time. All they do is air that show nonstop <laughs> uh, because they found that that's the easiest way to sort of you know, keep that channel going, but 
knowing that that demo isn't really watching linear, uh, they're putting all that stuff on, on Paramount. And you're finding more and more that even cable brands are kind of exclusively living on streaming now. And so that sort of, that came out of my Better Call Saul is, you know, AMC is one of the last of these major cable networks that's doing original content that still focuses on linear because they don't really have a streaming play. But with Better Call Saul going away, uh, I don't see how they can create a new show that's going to have that same kind of resonance in 2023 that gets awards attention. So The reason I asked is is because, you know, we, at least until a couple years ago, we're, we're living it through what... It, in critic land, they call the golden age of television or of prestige television. And I think because it overlapped with the flourishing of these streamers that in people's minds, it was the advent of streaming. It was Netflix and then Netflix's competitors that were responsible for this profusion of high quality linear television programming. Um, Talking to you, I get the sense that really the two things were sort of coincidental and that the the dawn of the prestige television era was an artifact of the of the cable bundle and the expensiveness of cable. Yeah. Uh, and then the streamers actually broke that up and may be ultimately responsible for the demise of the golden age of television. Right, right. I think uh, you know it's that uh, Jeff Goldblum quote from uh, from from Jurassic Park, right? Which I won't try to mangle now, but uh, sort of similarly, like how uh, you know one thing beget the other, and it ended up killing the first thing. Uh, in the case of prestige TV, I mean, it really, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, really put that marker, and you know, it's debatable because there are plenty of great shows before The Sopranos, but right. The Sopranos was a moment in time in 99 that heralded this new generation of, uh, you know, shows, networks, uh, you know, really these companies got serious suddenly in investing in prestige TV. And that's when cable especially got serious in doubling down on prestige. You know, FX came along a few years later with The Shield and, and heralded the dawn of prestige on basic cable, uh, which up until then was doing mostly, you know, procedural shows, doing low cost, low budget shows. But suddenly, oh, we can invest uh, in in really quality programming, spend uh, you know several million dollars on an episode instead of like five hundred grand on an episode, and and you saw that start to really work with FX and then with other uh, networks, including AMC, coming along too, and they were able to then really bolster their subscription fees. Uh, as a result, with cable companies, they would renegotiate these higher fees and also ad rates, uh, which were very important too. Suddenly they're getting premium ad dollars and really playing in that game. And, and suddenly, uh, you know, as they saw doing that, then you had other networks kind of wanting to jump in and do the same thing. And suddenly you even had networks like E, uh, which has no business doing scripted television. <laughs> 
E should do, you know stay in your lane, E. Uh, but even 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 they were doing scripted shows. It was there was a moment in time uh, in the early 2010s where suddenly everyone wanted to be in this game because they knew that's where the dollars were. That's where they could up their sub fees. That's where they could up their advertising fees. And you know as a result, we got some great programming. But it also stretched the business to the limit. And that's the moment, actually, when uh, FX has had John Landgraf first made his big proclamation that this can't be sustainable. We, are reached, we have reached peak TV. There's no way that this business can just support this amount of you know, high-quality, high-end, expensive scripted television. You're going to start to see that decline. He predicted that. In 2015, it's like, okay, we've reached the peak. We're going to go down. That was back when he was counting around 400 uh, original scripted shows in, on, on television, in prime time, on broadcast, cable, and pay. What he didn't account for was the arrival of, of streaming and the amount of money that companies like Netflix uh, were going to invest. Netflix spending $18 billion a year in original content, and then others coming to follow. So he didn't predict that. And as a result, instead of peak TV declining, it just went up more and more to this very year. 2022 uh, reached 599 uh, original scripted shows. That's English language only, and that's not including unscripted. That's not including kids' content. That's just primetime adult scripted shows on streamers, cable, broadcast, pay. Uh, now, he is predicting that that has reached the peak because, as we've briefly alluded to, you are seeing finally the streamers and some of the networks pull back, uh, cancel some shows that they've already picked up, uh, you know, shelve some shows that have already been produced because of this course correction that I mentioned earlier. So we kind of have finally hit the peak. And I think I think Landgraf is right now that the business has reached that threshold. But yeah, it took a lot longer to hit the peak than we thought. And to what extent is is the peak uh, like a bit of a bubble? Like I I mean, I don't my my sense is that I mean, you alluded to the the difference between how AMC creates television because it hasn't cracked the streaming code and how the streamers make television is different where uh, a network like AMC will you know, maybe not greenlight all five seasons of what they know will be a critically acclaimed hit show, but they'll have a plan in place for a you know pretty literary show to be produced. And then they'll put out the first season and then the plan will be for a second season, plan will be for a third season. On the streamers, my sense is it's, it's more like, let's make a season and if people watch it, and we get subscribers as a result, we'll do another one. And so you get these sort of like, like swing for the fences uh, productions that maybe they're, you know, maybe they're really good, uh, but they, because they don't have some huge impact, they never make it past one season. I mean, that's, that's my sense of like what I've seen from trying to watch TV shows on cable that seem to continue for a few seasons versus on streamers where, it's kind of no one knows when uh, if if the show you really just got into or stumbled across is ever going to see a, another season. And is that right? Is it is the medium of streaming changing what kind of programming gets made? And is that does it have to be that way 
because of the economics of streaming? Or could could the streamers try to do things the way HBO did with The Sopranos and AMC did with Breaking Bad? Well, it's 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 a different business model. So so part of it is just you know, and, and also a different style of of you know how they track audiences. And you know, in the case of a Netflix, for example, uh, you know, it it you know it is all about maintaining that uh, that that subscription level, maintaining that uh, you know, and, and trying to stop churn from happening from from you know having people cancel their subscriptions and. You know, if a show doesn't necessarily resonate with the audiences that they're trying to, uh, you know, really target it toward, then there's less of a reason to do a season two. Now, to back it up real quick, I think that's changed with streaming in the beginning. I do think they actually were more lenient in, in terms of giving a show a second shot, a third shot. First off, because they didn't have as much in the pipeline, so they were more patient uh, with with those shows, but also... Uh, you know, and the, and the money was free flowing uh, early on, so they could uh, you know try a show for a second season, a third season, because you know maybe it, it has a small but loyal audience, or or they 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 they're hoping maybe it'll take off in a second season and people have more episodes to binge. There there was more latitude than there is now, where these these companies now have to think much more business minded, and if something's not working, uh, they're much quicker to cut bait. That's why you're seeing streamers cancel shows more because, you know, if if a f- season one doesn't resonate, then the feeling is, well, season two is not going to move the needle in terms of signing up new subscribers or holding on to uh, current subscribers. So we need to quickly move on to the next thing. Uh, you know, interestingly, I think it's it's different in linear in that, uh, you know, if if a show has a loyal audience and it's humming nicely and it's part of your portfolio and it's a part of your brand, then you do want to keep it going uh, for as long as possible because, you know, that's that's what's sort of keeping the lights on. That's what's allowing you to then launch other shows. So you don't want to give it up as quickly as maybe in a streamer world where once you have, you know, 30 episodes of a show, well, you're not going to get any new subscribers. The people who are going to watch that show are already watching that show. So if you greenlight a fourth season, are you going to add any more subscribers? Well, no, you're not going to get anyone, you know, necessarily new there. So, uh, you know, maybe it's time to move on to something else. Uh, you already have that show in your library. It's there. So there's less of a need for, you know, say a hundred episodes of something, uh, versus 30. It's, it's less of a difference to them. I asked you earlier whether Mad Men or Better Call Saul uh, could actually be made today. I take from what you just said that a show like The Wire would never have made it past one season if it had been, if its first season had been a streamer, right? Like I think famously was not uh, widely watched um, until it got deeper into its run and people realized what a creative and good show it was. And it became more popular and then obviously like has had multiple lives sort of since then. And I don't know why it is that, uh, that, it managed to survive on cable despite not having a, a huge audience, but that as a streamer, it, they, uh, w- they would have cut 
they would have. I, well, you know, it's it's so hard to say because, you know, as, as a linear network, they probably should have cut bait on the wire, uh, but they didn't because they really saw something they believed in on that show. They 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 clearly felt like, OK, this means something. This is branding, maybe, you know, from an awards perspective. I mean, there's there's a lot of different things that, you know, may still keep a streamer like hooked into a show. You know, if if, you know, a streamer had a show like The Wire and it suddenly won, you know, best drama. Absolutely, it's coming back. Even if it's you know sort of a tough sell, they'll find a way to resell it. So there there are so many different things, and and you know this day and age we don't have access to the data that they have internally that tells them why they think a show is worth continuing or not. You know if if a show uh, doesn't have completion rates that are worth keeping it going, that's one thing. You know they they Netflix will. Tr- quickly see, okay, did people just drop this after the, the second episode? Well, they're not coming back then. This uh, this show's a dud. We got to move on. Or was it that the audience was small, but the audience that did watch this show, they watched it to the end. They loved it. Then, okay, there's something here. The people who watch this show really stick with it. They really love it. So we just need to find a new way to get this out to the masses. Then they might stick with it. So it is hard to say in this day and age, and it's frustrating as someone who covers this business because we don't get the kind of data that we used to get uh, in the linear world to to really get a sense of what's working, what's not working. We kind of have to rely on the streamers a lot more to tell us. I mean, which way do you think is, is, you know, they're both sort of, relying on a mix of market forces and the whims of the people who happen to be in charge, I guess, making sort of gut decisions. But which is a better way to make sure, like, the the average quality of content that you're getting is higher? Oh, in terms of rate, it's... Hmm. You, you, like, you know, I mean, like, if, 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 if we're thinking that... that Streamers maybe killed the golden age of television. I mean, it seems to me that like probably the 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 old, <laughs> you, the old you, way you, was you better. Just, but you said that not me. Okay. I mean, I, I I I'm not ready to say the golden age of television is over. Okay. I think there's a lot of great content. Uh, as as we're talking, I'm actually at the Apple uh, TV Plus Day at the Television Critics Association press tour. They're paneling a lot of great shows, and and uh, you know I continue to be impressed at a lot of the new stuff that's coming out from. Folks like Hulu and Apple and Netflix, by the way. So, you know, I think from a consumer perspective, it's still a great time. Yeah. Uh, at least from you know a program perspective. Now, you could argue it's not as great if you have to spend all that money on all these different services that you didn't feel like you needed to a couple of years ago. That's a different conversation. But at least from a, you know, is there too much TV to watch? Uh, there's still a lot of stuff. And, and you know, if, if for the folks who say, oh, there's nothing good on TV right now, well, I disagree. Right. I, I think you're just not looking hard enough. There's, there's, there's too much good stuff still. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to suggest that. What, 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 I guess what I was trying to get at is more like, are the, the metrics that the streamers are using and the gut checks they're making about whether to continue a program, are, are they – snuffing out more quality in the crib than the linear TV folks were in the previous status quo. What's better for generating quality creative content, like at a high ratio? Um, you know, that's a good question because it's so funny. We talk about that since, you know, uh, traditionally the, the feeling was broadcast was snuffing out, you know, good quality shows because they were so reliant on, 
ratings and and advertisers and and certain other characteristics. They're trying you know trying to be too broad, and then they're trying to be too narrow, and and there were so many things knocks against linear TV in snuffing out great television and 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 streamers. Uh, you know, to some degree, were were sort of the antidote to that. You know, came in and and if you had a niche story to tell that was you know not broad enough for broadcast or cable, well, streaming was a, a great place to go. And you know, there are a lot of great stories being told now. Shows like Reservation Dogs, which is FX on Hulu, or Mo on Netflix, uh, unique stories from people whose stories hadn't been told before. Uh, and and you know, on the flip side, you know, Mo's going to end after two seasons, which is a bummer. But at least we did get two seasons of Mo that maybe we would have never gotten if you know we had just still lived in a broadcast or cable universe, and not a streaming universe. So you know, I, I I still think we're getting a lot of stories told now that we didn't get before and that's just been good for television for storytelling so it's it's hard to argue against that um but you know it's it's just a different age where we're getting smaller stories you know we're not getting 100 episode stories we're not getting 10 season stories we're getting quick bites and then moving on to the next thing it's different is it better is it worse I don't know. It's just different. And it is amazing to me how quickly we've changed and how quickly the environment has changed that we now live in a world where we only get these quick bites unless you're still watching broadcast and you're on the 20th season of Grey's Anatomy or you know, the 100th season of NCIS. Uh, but you know that's a different world. That's a different kind of show. That's a different model. Those are the shows that aren't getting awards, but they are workhorses that a lot of people still love. So we still have a lot of good TV to watch if we, ha- you know, happen to be on the right services or still plugged in. Um, but just in the past couple of weeks, right, I've read a- about uh, the um, fewer customers on Netflix, right? Um, about I read about a studio executive who thinks consumers aren't paying enough for streamers, um, about the potential for a writer's strike over streaming residuals. Um, is is anyone actually satisfied outside of whether they think the quality of the of the output is good uh, with with where things stand as as like a business sales consumer relationship thing? Like who is winning right now? Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I think about this sometimes where you know, now that now that I'm the grizzled vet, you know, I've been doing this for over, like you mentioned in the intro, over 25 years. I can't remember a time when we weren't talking about, oh, no, the industry, it's struggling, it's troubled, things are changing, what's going to happen? And it is amazing to me that we've, you know, we, we continue to, you know, still see all this great content out there, but the industry seems to forever be in one crisis or another. Um, you know, when I first started this business, uh, it was, you know, the erosion of network TV, which is so funny to think back now, back in the 90s when shows like ER and Friends were still getting 40 shares on television, still doing these amazing ratings that, you know, just don't exist anymore and would never exist. But even back then, we were like, oh, no, here comes cable. Cable's going to kill broadcast. What does that mean? What does that mean for storytelling? And then, oh, no, here comes reality TV. Oh, no, reality survivor came along and it was going to 
kill scripted television. That was the end of it. Uh, it was all reality for the future. Well, there are, there's never been more reality TV than there is now, but because there are never there have never been more outlets, it just means there's never been more of everything. Right. So the business has changed. It's adapted, uh, and there's always been winners or losers. Uh, but it has, it has managed to survive. You know, we are in this interesting place right now where, again, like I, I was telling you two years ago, that answer would have been easy. The streamers are winning. They're, they're killing it right now. Um, but right now, it's harder to say because the streamers are going through these growing pains. Uh, you know, Netflix completely going through growing pains right now. Uh, you know, a lot of these uh, obviously HBO Max going through growing pains because Warner Brothers Discovery is going through growing pains. Now, that's something different. That's partly uh, sort of, uh, you know, that's self-inflicted because of, uh, you know, the the ownership structure, the changes that went on there. Uh, that's, you know, Wall Street, uh, you know, impacting things as well. But Warner Brothers Discovery merging and realizing that they've got even more debt on top of debt now and they have to, you know, massively cut costs and massively save money. And so they're having to go through and make all of these budget cuts and changes that, you know, really, again, are uh, of, of their own doing. So that's, you know, that that's partly because of the business, but partly because of just, you know, where they stand. But because they're having to do that, that that has a ripple effect throughout the industry. Netflix, uh, you know, seeing its stock price decline, that has a ripple effect effect through the entire industry. So you have this space right now where no one's really happy because everyone is dealing with these 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 uh, you know economic uh, problems, and you know now there's this concern that there may be a writer strike, right? Because you know, like I mentioned, the writers themselves are are not happy because they they don't feel like they've you know managed to you know you know come out on top uh, after all these changes, syndication going away, and you know those potential riches like I mentioned going away, back end going away, and this entire middle class of writer now, uh, you know, not you know having the kind of steady work that they once did because working on a ten episode show. Not the same as working on a 26-episode show where you have steady income throughout the year. Uh, and, and so suddenly this entire class of writer that's feeling squeezed and not really feeling like they there's any answer going ahead. Well, if enough of them say, you know what, let's just blow it all up. Let's just, you know, let's let's just go on strike and let's let's see what happens. If enough of them decide to, to go on strike, then there will be a strike. And then... Who knows what happens? Uh, you know, that strike in 2007, 2008 was devastating to the business, to writers, to networks, to everyone. Uh, you know, no one came out unscathed. And it took a while for things to adjust back. And some would argue it never really adjusted back. Well, we could see that again. It's it's funny hearing you talk about the way the, the ways these changes have sort of made consumers less happy, also made the people who run these individual streaming services, like they're just piling debt on top of debt as they merge because their individual niche little products aren't sustainable on their own. And those things together have hurt writers. So basically everyone's unhappy, but it makes me wonder is like, are we the, the whole set of us like making demands of each other where we're, we're pushing ourselves into a corner where the only way we everyone can get what they say they want 
is through cons- more like consolidating again. But uh, you said, you know, like the going back to the to to um, the cable era is that path seems to be closed off. But some some other form of consolidation where some faceless monopoly or duopoly, uh, you know. They probably, by virtue of being a monopoly or duopoly, will start fleecing customers and degrading service again. But everything would still be under one house, uh, so people wouldn't be paying for seventeen different things. Well, yeah, is that yeah, is, is yeah. that where we're headed? That that does seem to feel like that's where we're heading. I mean, you already see little you know, sort of hints of that with bundles, you know, mostly within different companies. You know, Disney obviously offers a Disney Plus, ESPN, Hulu bundle. You know, that makes sense because it's all within the same family. But I mean, you can go to Amazon now and subscribe to their channels and a la carte, you know, buy most of these services right now, in addition to Prime, everything pretty much but Netflix. Uh, HBO Max, I think, is going back on that Amazon channel service now. And, and to some degree, there's a version of that where, you know, you're still, you know, you're paying one bill, uh, you're still paying all of those, those different channels costs, but it's sort of in one place. So that's sort of, I think, a prelude to a larger uh, rebundling of the industry where maybe these different companies start to get together and come up with some sort of price point that looks more attractive to consumers that allows you to maybe get, uh, you know, five or six different streaming services at the same time. You know, that's partly why, you know, there, there's still talk of, you know, is it a question of when Apple buys you know, does it buy Netflix? Does it buy Disney? Uh, you know, Apple has for a long time wanted to be in that game of of being that company that's your one-stop shopping where you buy everything through them and it filters through them. Uh, you know, Amazon doing the same thing. So, you know, and and funny enough, those are the two companies. We talk about which companies are, are uh, you know, doing the best. Well, neither Apple or Amazon the, this is not their core business. Right. You know, we, we, we like to joke that, you know, content programming, it's like a rounding error. Exactly. I was going to say the same thing, rounding error for yeah. them. Yeah. And for Apple as well. So they can continue to spend, spend, spend. And, you know, Apple uh, and Amazon, you know, are, are still, you know, spending as much as they ever did because they can, because this is not their core business. And, and, you know, so again, it's, these different businesses have different business models, and so that allows them to operate differently. And that's why they're all operating so differently these days. So last question then. Apart from the duopoly of mega corporations that can give us our uh, content that we crave so much as sort of like a loss leader for their, for their other businesses, have you heard – has any leading light or – uh, hidden genius or policymaker uh, pointed you in the direction of a different way or a better way that this might look like a, a is is there a is there a new utopian idea out there for um, that's both unbundling but also good for consumers. I, I think VHS tapes. I think, we hit it, uh, <laughs> I think we just go back to recording on the VCR. Go back to those simpler times where, you know, you had the uh, the 12 o'clock that was flashing. Um, no, you know, the class, uh, I, 
I feel like people quote that nobody knows nothing, nobody knows anything quote, that William Goldman quote, more often than ever these days because it is that interesting time where no one really knows for sure where things are going. And there, there are interesting things going on in all sorts of different pockets of the industry. You know, one one segment of the streaming uh, revolution that we haven't talked about yet, which I, I find so funny as well, are these fast channels. Do you know about the free ad-supported television channels that you probably see now uh, all the time on, you know, either your smart TV or if you look at Pluto TV, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, these different services that basically are just, you know, these these you know channels that air nonstop you know maybe a certain show like the Three's Company channel the Twilight Zone channel which does exist I believe on Pluto TV uh, and and you know the Paramount especially has really embraced the fast channels and other companies are sort of going all in on these as well because they're ad supported people uh, tend to spend a lot of time on these but the irony of all ironies is with fast channels uh, they basically look like basic cable circa 1984 mm-hmm. back in the day when you know TBS was airing nothing but black and white repeats and and so it reminds you of that but the funny thing is people aren't paying for them people aren't subscribing to fast channels you get them for free so i'm like what did you do business what did you do you basically you recreated 1984 cable but you made it worse for you by not charging people for it so now you're basically giving it away for free and the only thing you're making is advertising dollars as opposed to ad dollars plus sub fees so i don't know what you did here but you kind of you 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 played yourself (laughs) (laughs) i mean a you know in a weird way service that is ad supported so that it's like watching TV in your living room in the 1990s in some sense. But instead of having to um, like live and die by the TV guide, you get to make your own programming list. Maybe that wouldn't be so bad. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think all things considered, it is for consumer, we're talking consumer, uh, you know, because we've mostly been talking about the business uh, uh, challenges uh, that that uh, this business is facing in the next couple of years. But for consumer, I still think it's a great time. I, I still think that, you know, on balance, um, you know, you do have access still to more great programming than you ever have before and more opportunities to watch more things than you ever did before back in the day when, like you said, you did have to wait for a show to come on and then record it uh, or just hope that, you know, one day something would pop up again or, you know, you never dreamed in your wildest imagination that A-list movie stars would suddenly uh, appear in a eight-episode amazing scripted TV show. Well, now all of that is true. I think that's a good place to end it. Michael Schneider, thank you for spending so much of your time with us. I learned a lot. Absolutely. So here's a little glimpse behind the scenes. My producer pitched this episode based on his own familiar frustrations with where the great unbundling has taken us. And we greenlit it because basically everyone on the team had the same frustrations. And those in turn have been articulated by professional writers and lecturers in articles and speeches going back years. 
That's not scientific evidence that we took a wrong turn somewhere. It may be that if you polled Americans on this topic, the vast majority would say they're satisfied with their viewing options, that they like Netflix more than they like their cable company, et cetera, et cetera. In a way, I'd be surprised if that weren't the case. But consumer unhappiness is widespread enough to have spillover effects, like Netflix losing subscribers and executives whining about spoiled customers and creators unhappy with the way streamers have changed their livelihoods. It all adds up to an unstable equilibrium. And honestly, my main hope when we scheduled this conversation was that it would key us into cutting-edge thinking about how to stabilize it. Where do we go from here that's better than what we have now and better than what we had before? And Michael definitely delivered that. It's just that the improvement in this case would stem from corporate consolidation and increasing the reach that giant technology incumbents, most likely Apple and Amazon, have into our lives. The economics of that arrangement would definitely work, but I think particularly among this audience, it would also give rise to new conundrums and frustrations. Without belaboring all the misgivings that critics have with those two companies, I think it's fair to say that a future where they control the production and distribution of most television pop culture is one where those same critics will face an irresolvable tension between their moral commitments to, say, labor rights and their basic conditions as members of society. If you want to shop without spending through Amazon now, you can't. But at some point soon... Being entertained and having common cultural touch points with your friends and family might make avoiding that impossible. So what then? Well, nothing terribly satisfying, but it's a reminder that the ways corporations conduct themselves, the rules they're supposed to abide by, are at some level established by us, not as directly as they should be, of course, but directly enough that, to coin the great cartoonist Matt Boers, people can improve society somewhat while still participating in it. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Olivia Martinez. And our associate producer is Emma Illich-Frank. Evan Sutton mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. 